couple of weeks ago, I shared about how I have spent five spring breaks in Panama City Beach, Florida. And you may, may be wondering, how do you spend five spring breaks down there? Well, truth be told, I did manage to, to squeeze my four-year college degree into five years. But that's not actually how I spent five spring breaks down there. I only had two down there as a college student. And the final three were after I graduated from college. And each time I was down there, I was there with a the campus ministry for a conference and for an outreach. Each afternoon, we would go out on the beach and engage in spiritual conversations with those who are on spring break. And you may be thinking, well, how much do college students on spring break really want to talk about Jesus? Well, in reality, there are a lot of great conversations taking place. Here's how a conversation like this would typically start. I would primarily talk with guys. Um, I mean, we let the girls talk with girls, guys talk with guys. So I would oftentimes walk up to a guy or a group of guys and say, Hey, I'm here with the conference. Uh, we're wondering if, um, if I could ask you a few questions about your spiritual beliefs. And a few people wouldn't be interested at all. But many people would say, Sure, fire away or, or have a seat. Because what I found out is that as these guys are sitting out there on the beach for hours every afternoon, all they're really doing is drinking beer and watching the girls walk by. Now, while for many people those maybe seem like worthwhile pastimes, at the same time, this did give them quite a bit of time as well. And so there are a lot of people who are very open to these conversations. And I, I remember many tremendous conversations down there, some of which went on more than two hours. Now, one of the things I realized, and it's not just me who realized, and I'm not super smart, it's just a general fact of knowledge uh, for ministries that do outreach down there. It's a dynamic where as the week of spring break progresses, people's spiritual openness oftentimes increases. You may be wondering, why is that? Well, when people go on spring break down there for typical spring breaks, oftentimes they are looking at it as the pinnacle of their life. And the first few days are very exciting, uh, very fun. But then the days of, of hard partying begin to wear on them. And this pinnacle of life that they're expecting doesn't quite live up to those expectations. And maybe they had a few bad experiences along the way down there. And so what we find is that as the week progresses, there is a greater spiritual openness. And this leads to even greater fruitfulness in terms of talking about Jesus. And so what happens, if we use the terms we've been using in the AHA series, is that they are in the distant country, and then there is a, sort, a sense of awakening for many of them. But we have to recognize that in this sort of awakening, as in all awakenings, the awakening itself doesn't necessarily lead to lasting life change. An awakening, a realization by itself, doesn't change anything. I mean, for instance, many people out there realize that their marriage is struggling. There are many people out there who realize that they are addicted to drugs or, or alcohol or porn. There are many people who realize that their body is not very healthy. Or there are many people who realize that they have a problem with anger or bitterness, but this realization, this awakening to these, to these facts, that, that doesn't automatically lead to life transformation. It's what we do after we have the awakening and the realization that determines whether or not there's going to be any lasting change. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 15. 
We are in a series right now called AHA, which stands for Awakening, Honesty, and Action. It's really looking at these dynamics of spiritual transformation, and it recognizes that awakening is only one part of it. After that comes the necessary honesty and then action if we want to experience true lasting transformation. Now, you may be wondering, you've been here a few weeks, and you wonder, why do we keep going back to the exact same passage? Why don't we move on to something else? Well, this series is based on the parable of the prodigal son out of Luke 15. And so the reality is that we keep coming back to this passage, but hopefully you see that these aren't the same messages every week. I mean, I'm not like just getting lazy and recycling this and saying, oh, okay, well, we'll do Luke 15 again. We'll do the same message as last week. That's easier. No, they're different messages each week as we walk step by step through this parable. Now, before we dive in for today, I want to point out something that's very exciting coming up in two weeks. In two weeks, the theme is celebration because the younger son who has rebelled against his family has come home. And there is a tremendous, grand celebration. We're going to reflect that in our service. It's going to be a very unique service that celebrates God's power to transform lives. And so if there is ever a time that you've thought, well, maybe I should invite so-and-so to church. Well, May 17th, two weeks from today, would be a great Sunday to do that because we're really celebrating God and how he transforms lives. It'll be a lot of unique aspects of that. Uh, but there is an aspect as well that you have a role in if you choose to. In addition to your attendance here, and in addition to inviting people, we're going to do what are called cardboard testimonies. Now, if you don't know what a cardboard testimony is, here it is. You have a sheet of cardboard, and you have a message written on each side. And one side talks about your life before you knew Christ, or or an aspect of your life that was struggling in some manner in the past. And on the other side, it has a phrase that depicts the difference that Jesus has made in your life. And so it's really uh, just glorifying God for how he changed his lives. Let me give you a few examples of cardboard testimonies. If you do a search on the internet, you'll see hundreds or thousands of them. Um, But here are a few examples. One, this woman at first never, is never quite good enough. But then, through the gospel, she recognizes that God's power is made perfect in my weakness. It's cardboard testimony. The next one, this man obviously has been through some hard times. Uh, before he was lost and alone, he, he, drugs were a major part of his life. He was homeless, but now, by the grace of God, he is five years drug-free, and he's even a ministry leader. Or a third one, previously controlled by fear, now free to trust. Or another one, caving into addiction, but now, through Jesus, called and serving God. See these testimonies of how Jesus changes people's lives. And now one final one. This young person fell unloved. She said she hated herself. But now through the gospel, she recognizes she is loved by God. She is fearfully and wonderfully made. And like I said, there are, there are a lot of these out there. I encourage you, to, if you want to research this more, go type in cardboard testimony into Google. Um, you'll see a lot of cool things. But we're going to do cardboard testimonies here. And here's how it's going to work. Next Sunday, we're going to have a booth set up out here in Fellowship Hall to take people's photographs. We'll provide the cardboard. We'll provide the markers. And I would ask you between now and next Sunday to be thinking of of two short phrases that describe the work that Jesus has done in your life. Whether it's the transition from before you were a Christian and now that you are a Christian. Or maybe it's why you were a Christian for why you were struggling with something or had some fear or anxiety. 
And now Jesus has, has significantly transformed that. So these are going to be testimonies that are going to put into a slideshow all these different pictures just to testify that God has power to change people's lives. And we, you know what? We might have enough where we have to divide them into a couple slideshows for a couple services, but it'll be a great testimony of God's work. And this is just one piece of the celebration service on May 17th. Now today, we are talking about the H in AHA, which is brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. I want to clarify that when talking about brutal honesty, I'm not talking about being brutal in how honest we are to those around us. I mean, an example of that could be, well, honey, I know that you spent a lot of time getting ready this morning, but quite honestly, you look hideous in that dress. That is honesty that is brutal. And that is not what we are talking about today. Brutal honesty is being ruthlessly honest with ourselves about the sin in our lives and about the circumstances that we face. We're being brutally honest rather than hiding things or sweeping them under the rug. So I invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to dig, dig into Luke 15. Our Father, we thank you that we can be brutally honest with you. You not only invite it, but you encourage it. Lord, and when we are brutally honest with you, you offer a cleansing, Lord. And I pray that you will open our eyes in fresh ways today to the power and even the freeing beauty of being honest with ourselves, with others, and with you. And so I pray that you will be our teacher today through your word and your spirit, and that you will be at work in our midst, enabling us in fresh ways to be honest in all these ways to experience the transformation that comes through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So once more, I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. It says that Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property among them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out. And go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So today we're talking about brutal honesty. And as I look at this passage, especially verses 17 through 19, I see four key ingredients for being brutally honest. The passage starts out in verse 17 saying, When he came to his senses. Now what this is, is an awakening to reality. And this awakening, the A and aha, is key to being brutally honest. And these two together, along with action, are key to spiritual transformation. You look at this younger son, as we looked at last week, he had an awakening in the distant country. He had worked very hard to cling to his dreams that he was pursuing in that distant country, even when things around him were crashing down. And sure, he ran out of money. But he thought, I can get a job. 
Sure, he gets a job working among the, the pigs, which is not the most desirable job, but you know what? He can handle that because surely then he can make a living and keep those dreams going. But then he's not even able to make enough money to feed himself. He's hungry. He's starving. He starts to beg along the roads, but no one will give him anything. And it's finally, after all these different things, they're trying to prop up those dreams of, of clinging to his dreams, that things come crashing down to the point where he has an awakening. It's an aha moment, a realization that something is wrong and something needs to change. As we've already talked about, just because you have an awakening, that doesn't automatically change anything. There has to be something that accompanies that. And unfortunately, for many people, their aha experience is derailed. There is no lasting transformation because their aha stops with awakening. They don't move to the next step of this brutal honesty. And the next step of brutal honesty, as we see here, is accepting responsibility. Accepting responsibility. He says, um, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. So that's the awakening. He's starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have sinned. This is an acceptance of... Of responsibility, it's really quite amazing. He is not sitting here pointing the finger at someone else. He's not sitting here saying, "Well, I just—I wasn't quite in my right mind. I, I just made an accident here." No, he—he he was very clear and straightforward, and he said, "You know what? I have sinned." He is accepting responsibility. And accepting responsibility when we have done something wrong is something that is oftentimes very hard. It's remarkable that he does this, but it's hard to be this honest in accepting responsibility because our natural reaction in these times where we are convicted or someone confronts us on something, our natural reaction is, is to point the finger the other direction, to blame someone else or to sweep the issue under the rug and, and act like it wasn't really our fault. Now, many of you are in AHA Life groups, which... I uh, offer a modern-day depiction of this parable. Now, I want to show you a clip that will be coming up this particular week that shows what it's like to not accept responsibility. Tim, I'm going to have to find a way to support three kids. And I'm the one that had to figure out how to pay for it. Oh, I'm going to pay for it. I'm done. I want to go back to my cell. Start getting used to my new home. So if you've been following the storyline in the DVDs, you probably want to wring Tim's neck at this point, saying, come on, can't you see that it's your fault? I mean, all along, it's been clear that he is the one who's really the driving force behind why he is in jail right now, but he's refusing to accept responsibility. 
he's pointing the finger at his wife, even though the ultimate responsibility lies with him. You know what he's doing here? Let me give you a sophisticated word for it. He's scrambling. He's scrambling. He's just doing everything he can to shirk responsibility to get himself off the hook. About a year ago, we did a series called The Fall, which was based on Genesis chapter 3. And in that series, we looked at this downward progression of, of the dynamics of sin, which started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of, uh, Garden of Eden, but then continues still today in our lives. And the downward spiral looks like this. It starts with deception, where we are deceived of God's truth and God's goodness, and that leads to doubting God and God's plan and God's goodness, and that leads to illegitimate desires. And at this point, it's not sin yet, but when we act on these illegitimate desires, like the younger son did when he asked for his inheritance early, that is when you get into sin. After we sin, we begin to feel shame because we realize we, we are exposed. We, we look bad in this. And so we're, we're ashamed. We are fearful. And then to cover up that shame and that fear, we begin to scramble. And scrambling looks a variety of different ways. But what we're trying to do is cover ourselves up. And we see this playing out in Genesis chapter 3. Let me read beginning in verse 7 of Genesis 3 what's taking place. This is right after Adam and Eve ate from the fruit that they were told not to eat. Says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So that's one part of scrambling right there. They're, they're naked, they're ashamed, and so they, they sew together fig leaves. Now, I would not want fig leaves as my source of covering. I'd want something more significant, but they're scrambling. They're doing what, whatever they can to hide themselves. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So this is part two of scrambling here. They're trying to hide from God. That's a futile effort. You're not going to hide from God. But they're still they're scrambling. They're doing what they can. Moving on. But the Lord God said, called the man, and where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so you see this blame game going on. God God comes first to Adam. He says, no, it wasn't me. It was the woman. And not only was it the woman, but it was the woman who was your idea to put her there in the first place. So he's blaming Eve and God. So God goes to Eve Eve doesn't accept responsibility either. She then points the finger at the serpent. So it's the blame game. And that's a picture of scrambling. And we all scramble in our lives as well. Sometimes in fairly socially appropriate ways. Sometimes in ways that are, are kind of ugly and hurt a lot of people in the process. But we scramble. Back a year ago, I used an example that uh, many people remember pretty well. Um, let me remind you, if you weren't here or tell you if you weren't here, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. And it's enough of a sweet tooth where I don't really buy uh, sweets much. But somehow sweets somehow come into my possession. They're given to me. Somehow I inherit them. They're left over from a life group at our house. I get a Culver's gift card for Christmas, and I buy concrete mixers. And so, you know, sometimes I do buy sweets, but not that often because my best form of self-control is not to bring it in the house. And, and so I like sweets. And, and a number of years ago, 
Someone gave me a whole bunch of candy. I think it was Halloween candy or something like that that was left over. They knew I liked candy. So they gave it to me, and I ended up with a ton of wrappers from candy in my trash can under my desk. Now, someone saw that, pointed out to someone else. It was kind of embarrassing for me. And then fast forward a couple of years. Somehow I inherited a whole bunch of candy again. I put a little bit of those wrappers in my garbage can. Then I distributed responsibility to other people rather than accepting it myself. I took a few candy wrappers and put them in the kitchen garbage can, a few candy wrappers put them in the Fellowship Hall garbage can, out in the lobby. Now, I did not try to frame any of my coworkers. I did not put any in Pastor David's trash can or in Heidi's trash can. So I wasn't completely giving responsibility to them. I was just getting it off of my shoulders. And that's a picture of, of scrambling, not accepting responsibility. Now, here's a fresh confession. No one's heard this except in first service. So I was opening a drawer on my desk this week, and I found something I'd forgotten about. And this is the evidence bag right here. They were not in this bag. Candy wrappers, and a whole lot of them. It reminded me that there was a time a month or two ago where I somehow came into a lot of candy again. I did not purchase the candy. It just came to me, and I ate it. Now, it was extended over a period of time, but you know what it's like. You're sitting there. You're doing work. You're emailing on the computer, working on sermon, whatever. And you just eat a piece of candy at a time, and next thing you know, over the period of some days, you're eating a lot of candy. I said, I have a sweet tooth. And I put some of the wrappers in my, um, in my trash can, but I felt like that is an awfully lot of wrappers to put in my trash can at once. I'm still kind of bearing that shame that's been with me for a while. And so I was not going to distribute responsibility to others anymore, so I just put some in my trash can and then obviously put a whole lot in my desk drawer. And what that was, it was scrambling. It was hiding. It was being embarrassed of the reality. It wasn't being fully honest. I do think there was a Culver's concrete mixer cup in my trash can at the time as well. And so that kind of added to it. I didn't want to add these to it. But, you know, that's what scrambling looks like. And we all do it. I mean, sometimes it's kind of humorous, but sickly humorous like this. Um, And sometimes it's much uglier. It's lying. It's cheating. It's blaming others in very destructive ways. It's gossiping about others to cover ourselves up. It it can be very ugly. And that's what this younger son could have done, but he chose not to. He probably was scrambling for a while in a distant country, but now he's at the point where he's ready to accept responsibility. And you know what? He could have pointed the finger at others. He could have. I mean, he could have drug up a lot of stuff about his dad, about uh, things his dad said or did that were not right. I mean, if you live with someone long enough, you're going to, if you want to, come up with a list of examples of how they have done you wrong. He certainly could have pointed the finger at his older brother. I mean, his older brother, as shown later in the passage, had a lot of arrogance and a lot of sense of entitlement that was ugly. But he did not point the finger. Instead, he accepted responsibility, saying, I have sinned. And that ties into the next ingredient of brutal honesty of confessing sin. Accepting responsibility and confessing sin are really two sides of the same coin frequently. Now, this idea of sin, he said, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This idea of sin is not popular in today's culture. And even among some churches, it's not very popular. There are pastors out there who talk all about how to uh, live your best life now or about how to be all that you can be or how to... Now to 
make, you, make yourself better in seven steps, but they strategically avoid the term and the idea of sin. But I would say that that is not biblical preaching. That instead is motivational speaking. It's not biblical preaching. And if we want to be biblical about this, then we have to understand that sin is a reality. And as the young son said here, I have sinned against heaven, meaning God, and against you to his father. This is what he's planning to tell his father. And he recognizes that even though he certainly has sinned against his dad, against his family, and against even his village, that sin against those people is also ultimately a sin against the holy God. So confessing sin is an important ingredient of brutal honesty, as is finally accepting the consequences. He says in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He recognizes that, you know what? He had wished his dad was dead. He is no longer worthy to be called his dad's son. He says, just make me like one of your hired servants. We'll talk more about this idea next week of what that's all entailing there. He's accepting consequences. He doesn't deserve to be a part of the family anymore. And we have to understand that even for ourselves, God offers us forgiveness and freedom from condemnation, which is beautiful. But there are still times where we have to face the consequences of our sin and our time in the distant country. And so these are the ingredients of brutal honesty, awakening to reality, accepting responsibility, confessing sin, and accepting the consequences. Now, when we look at this idea of brutal honesty, I think, it's, I think it might very well be the most difficult part of aha. I mean, awakening, that happens. Action, yeah, that's obviously important. But I think the honesty piece is very, very hard. It's hard to look in the mirror and see our problems. It's ugly at times. It's even harder to confess our sin, even to ourselves at times, but also to other people. Because, you know what, confessing our sin to other people can kind of feel like um, just kind of suicide, sort of, in terms of, um, of telling people something that they don't already know. But what's, what's the good in that? You may be wondering this. Well, we also have to understand, we'll get to that in a minute, that this level of brutal honesty that we're talking about here really unlocks the door to transformation. It unlocks the door to life transformation. Let me give you a few passages that relate to this. One is James chapter 5, verse 16 which says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other. It's not just keep it inside, not just give it to God, but even confess your sins to each other. And this is what at times seems counterintuitive. It seems like self-sabotage. Why would he do this sort of thing? Well, even secular psychologists recognize that there is an importance to confessing sin and wrongdoing. There's a textbook out there uh, called Coping with Stress. It's not a Christian one, but let me read to you what it says about the benefits of confessing sin or wrongdoing. It says that people who tend to keep secrets have more physical and mental complaints on average than people who do not, including greater anxiety, depression, and bodily symptoms such as back pain and headaches. The initial embarrassment of confessing is frequently outweighed by the relief that comes with the verbalization of the darker secretive aspects of the self. So we see that, that, that confessing sin to other people, there are practical benefits of that. There, there's a healing process that takes place, and we have to understand 
the aha, that, that process of transformation will be short-circuited if we are unwilling to confess sins to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. There will not be lasting change. Now let me point to you to another passage, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, that says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So concealing our sins, trying to hide them, trying to scramble away from them, that does not lead to anything good. But if we confess them, if we renounce them, we will find mercy and in the process, growth and even transformation. I think um, another story from my life, it's funny, we have a a message on honesty and then I guess that calls for the pastor to lay some things out there like candy wrappers and uh, this one where... I was thinking about how a few weeks ago in my huddle, I'd meet with a group of guys on, on Wednesday nights uh, just for helping each other grow spiritually. And I was being convicted about how I was really failing in my scripture memory. For many years, I was very faithful in memorizing scripture. And I had committed hundreds of verses and passages to memory. And it really was transformational for me in my life and my ministry and my love for God. But then a couple of years ago, things got a little bit more challenging with parenthood, the transition from uh, one kid to two, and there are a bunch of different things that kind of got dropped in that very difficult time, uh, including I stopped exercising for probably like nine months or something like that, but scripture memory was one of those things that I just kind of let it go as a discipline. And I got convicted over time because I realized, you know what, my grasp of all these passages I've memorized, it's, it's loosening. I can paraphrase them still, but I struggle to really quote them. And I tried a couple different times to, to re-kickstart uh, my scripture memory process. But each time it fizzled out after a few weeks. And so finally at my huddle on a Wednesday night, maybe probably six weeks ago or so, I just told the guys this. I hadn't verbalized it to anyone outside of myself and God. And I said, you know what? Here's the issue. I've been lapsing on this. I need to get back into it. Will you hold me accountable? So I confessed and I asked for accountability. It's amazing that once I got it out there on the table... Once we're talking about it, it's amazing how now I'm back in the Scripture memory faithfully with great joy. But that's the power of releasing and confessing sin or shortcoming to other people and seeking accountability is that it transforms us. And one of the other things we have to understand is that by confessing sin to others, to ourselves, to God, it opens the door for the power of the gospel. I turn our attention now to 1 John chapter 5. Or, sorry, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. John says, This is the message we have heard from him, meaning Christ, and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we see here the power of confession. 
that when we confess sins to God, there is healing, there is renewal. And like I said, if there is honesty in confessing sin, it opens the door for the gospel. But where you do not have honesty, you do not have the gospel. Picture it like this. Picture a room up, or a house up here with two rooms. This music stand right here is the, the wall. That room represents the gospel with the cross. I'm over here in this other room, and there's a door right here. I have sin in my life. I look in the mirror and see, you know what? I have some ugliness here. All I have to do is open that door through confessing sin, and it allows grace and the gospel to come flooding in. But if we are unwilling to confess our sins to ourselves, to God, to other people, it's like keeping that door shut. The gospel is right there available the whole time. We, we aren't going to experience any of the benefits of it or the grace if we keep that door shut. And so that's what confession does. That's what honesty does. It opens the door to grace, opens the door to the gospel. Now, I don't know where each one of us are in terms of honesty um, and, and confession and where we are with that. I know that we all have different things that we struggle with. We all have different parts of our lives that may be in the distant country in part or in whole. And it can be tough to be brutally honest. But I do know that there is not one of us who can stand in front of this metaphorical mirror and say, you know what? I'm doing great. I have it all together. Because if we think that we can honestly say that, what that means is that we have the mentality of the older brother. It's this mentality of entitlement, of I deserve this. No. Honesty says, you know what? I still have a lot of room for growth. And we have to understand that when we're talking about brutal honesty this shows how aha is to be a continual experience throughout our lives in this lifetime we'll never arrive at sinless perfection it's a process and so we need continual ahas continual honesty and awakening and action to experience the ongoing life transformation that god intends for us now in a few minutes we're going to celebrate the lord's supper together and the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the fact that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As we prepare our hearts for this, I want to close uh, by having us reflect on our sinfulness. I'm going to ask some questions. And I, as I ask the questions in a minute, I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes, listen to the questions, and we're going to go to a time of prayer. There will be music quietly playing in the background. The time of prayer, a time of confession, uh, confessing sin to God, a time of reflection, a time of thanking God for, for his sacrifice of Christ. And then we will come to communion and celebrate the fact that in Christ there is no condemnation for those who have placed their faith in him. So I invite you now, and you can close your eyes. I'm going to read these questions. I know they are convicting, but they're intended to be to help us to be honest with ourselves and with God. I'm going to read the questions, and then we'll have a time of prayer, and then go to uh, communion. So as you look at your life, is there someone in your life who you're holding a grudge against and you need to forgive them? As you look at your life, are you looking to something besides God for your ultimate sense of identity, well-being, and joy? How often do you really give others your undivided attention? How is your marriage doing? When was the last time you gave your spouse or your kids the best of your time rather than just the leftovers? 
Do you treat your parents with respect? Is there a part of your life that you have been hiding from others? When was the last time you apologized first rather than waiting for the other person to take the initiative? How much control of your finances do you give to God? When was the last time you found joy and spiritual nourishment from personally reading scripture? Do you spend more time on Facebook or in prayer? When was the last time you saw someone in need and sacrificially helped them? And finally, is your heart truly close to God or are you only going through the motions? Our Father, we pray that you will do a work in our hearts. We know that you sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of guilt in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray that the Spirit will be at work in our lives, convicting us of our sin. Lord, I pray that you will search us and know our heart, that you will test us and know our anxious thoughts, that you will see if there is any offensive way in us, and that you will lead us in the way everlasting, according to the words of Psalm 139. Lord, please help us to be honest with you so that we can experience your grace and your redemption.